Hey everyone, and welcome to Deep Diving with Enneagram 4s, where we journey into the gritty, raw, dark, bright, and everything of our Enneagram 4 experience, both as individuals and as a couple. We're your hosts, Victoria. And I'm Bryce. And today, the spotlight is going to be on Bryce. Right on. And you are going to share your um, your type journey story, how you finally landed as a self-preservation four. Mm-hmm. So before you you go into your monologue. <laughs> let's set the story time let's set the stage so let's all imagine a shore cliff does that make sense yeah cliff cliff by the shore mm-hmm. <laughs> a cliff by the a cliff by the shore by the ocean <laughs> Yeah, seaside, seaside cliff. <laughs> seaside mm-hmm. cliff. My story is going to go a lot smoother <laughs> than this intro. <laughs> Maybe. A seaside cliff, and Bryce is at the edge of it. About, probably, about to fall. Probably <laughs> a little bit the closer edge. to the edge <laughs> than is comfortable for his audience, who are seated before him, and so Bryce is uh, facing inland. And the audience looking out, all of Mm y'all, are seeing him before you with the wide open ocean beyond. And it is not a very sunny day. It's actually overcast. Mm. And there, (laughs) (laughs) there's a beautiful uh, uh, storm, storm system off in the the mm-hmm. distance uh yeah. and it's and it's creating for uh a a color palette that is um a mixture of grays and um it's intense yeah a little, little bit sure okay a little chaotic I- yeah beautiful yeah yeah thanks yeah. babe it's i appreciate that <laughs> yeah you're welcome and the temperature, it's its a little on the cooler side. But everyone has been handed out like warm blankets. So you're all good. Right. So you just cozy up. Cover your knees. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. And feel the the nice sea, sea breeze on, on your skin and the smell of the <clears throat> salt water. And uh, while, while Bryce begins his story, his type journey story. Okay, so I'm a self-preservation four. <sighs> it's been a tricky long ride for me to finally land in my actual type. And it's my hope that in telling y'all my story here, that it may aid in clearing up some things for some of you out there who might have some type confusion, particularly when it comes to the self-preservation for. 
which Beatrice Chestnut and Oranio Paez, who you'll hear lots more about as we continue with our podcast, what they call the countertype of the four. So a quick note here. The definition of a countertype is when the passion of the type and the dominant instinct of the subtype are in some kind of opposition to one another. So unlike other schools of thought, which consider only type six to have a countertype, and that's the, you know, the infamous counterphobic six who goes with something of like a, an aggressive and preemptive force against the passion of fear so they don't look fearful. Well, B and Oranio view each one of the nine types as having two subtypes that are more expected in how they would look. And then there's one subtype that is counterintuitive. So like that means there's a countertype two and a countertype eight, etc., all the way around the Enneagram. And B and Oranio would say, and I totally agree with this, that it is essential that we have an understanding of all nine countertypes to avoid some really common mistypings. And you'll see how this plays out in my own story. (laughs) So. (laughs) That was thunder. Okay, cool. Thank you. Okay, so here we go. I was in my mid-20s. My now ex-wife and I had moved into a new apartment. We were three stories up, and I was stepped up onto the balcony, and I was leaning out past it because I was hanging from a branch. My shirt was off, I was wearing my bright blue Venice Beach bought skater pants that flared out really big on the bottom. And our neighbor came out, he introduced himself and asked if we knew about the Enneagram. I did not, so this, I guess you could say, was my Enneagram birthday. And he rather quickly tagged me as a seven and with some authority, like he knew what he was talking about. So this, by the way, (laughs) is not how you want to introduce people to the Enneagram by telling them what type they are. Though I have to say also that I'm guilty of it in my own somewhat lighter touch way. Yes, I'm one of his victims. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I do think there are a handful of friends out there who still think they're a certain type because I suggested it to them way back in my early days and and a certain type that is not the correct type. And so maybe this podcast is a way of cleaning up at least some of my karma. Yeah, this this episode. So, so that happened on the balcony. I was intrigued. Because here was a typology system that, number one, uh, I hadn't heard of before. Two, that didn't rely on a birthday or a birthplace. 
that you had to actually work to discover your own type for yourself. And three, it had some kind of esoteric foundation holding like some sort of truth about our essential nature underneath the personality. And I've always had a driving need to really know myself a desire that has preoccupied most of my waking hours, at least when I'm alone. So when I was introduced to the Enneagram, I was drawn in by the hopes that it might unlock more doors in my own self-understanding, all of which is pretty dang four-ish. Hmm. Not to say that other types can't or don't have the desire for self-understanding and self-knowledge. I'm not saying that. It's just the extreme nature of the compulsion. So I bought Wisdom of the Enneagram, the quote, blue book by Riso and Hudson. And after reading the seven, I felt kind of flattered actually that my neighbor had typed me as the adventurer not sure that's the word that they use but Mm. you know that's what the seven is kind of known as so I would never have defined myself as optimistic (laughs) or (laughs) exciting or carefree or at least as me having those as my core traits my own self-image tended toward deficiency and something is wrong with me that other people seem to have like figured out or mastered or cultivated in themselves and like something of a, a darkness in me not the lightness of the seven and so while I liked the idea of being a seven it just didn't stick for all that long and that's when I landed on the nine and specifically the sexual nine. A massive avoidance of conflict, check. Um, Rarely, if ever, experience anger, check. Highly creative, lover of archetypes, merging with nature and fusing with romantic partners, checks all the way through. And to top it all off, Eli Jackson Bear, who wrote another Enneagram book that I owned, actually, and his was my very first Enneagram book just before Wisdom of the Enneagram. So he claimed that Ramana Maharshi, who is purportedly one of the greatest sages of the 20th century, he claimed that he was a nine. Now, I'm not sure anymore if that's even true. But at the time, I took his word for it. And I was like, hey, if Ramana Maharshi, who was really, at that point in time, something of a role model for me, if he's a nine and he's considered a like very awake human being, one of the total tops, actually, of all time, then by me being a nine... I have potential, like I may actually have some value latent in me that just hasn't surfaced yet. So little did I know 
This is exactly how the passion of envy manifests in the self-preservation four. Because while I said just a few minutes ago that my four self-image leans towards deficiency and lack, the self-pres instinct mixes in and then just totally flat out denies my experience. And I jump right into, it's like a forward moving attempt to cultivate the values and even the very way of being of those people who I idealize. Meaning I don't generally stay wallowing in my lowly self sense and instead I move into some kind of action even if it's largely internal and you can't even see it from the outside and I try to create a better self but it's really all something of a trap because while I'm striving to create an authentic self it's not coming from a true and grounded and real and genuine place because it's motivated by my type's delusion that something really important is missing in me and thus any progress that I can make on this path isn't actually real because it's all manufactured via my misperception that there is something deeply innately wrong with me. I, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and round and round I go. Mm. Still with me? Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I landed on the sexual or one to one nine the quote, softest, dreamiest of the nines. And for over 20 years, I translated my life experience through the lens of the nine, that I've forgotten my true nature, I've fallen asleep to myself, and these things actually are true for all of us of any type when we're still enmeshed in our personality. I also gained some real benefit from working with the nines arrow to three, the remembering of my own personal value. So there's actually truth in this enough that my believing I was a nine did actually serve me through all those 20 plus years because finding and feeling what is positive in me is a real necessity for all of us fours. But I was never able to make any deep and real and lasting change regarding my core suffering. And I did suffer a lot. I have suffered a lot. Even if only the people closer to me could see this or even, uh, well, I mean, depending on who I let in, to, to see me. I wasn't able to make real changes because I wasn't seeing and fessing up to and really letting myself experience the more hard to face aspects of my true type situation. So there's another thing about my past and my rationalizing being a sexual nine or just making sense of it my earliest memory 
I was two, running through a field on the eastern Colorado Plains, sunset, girl from next door, she was also two, running in front of me. It was a shocking moment for me. The dying sun, I know that sounds dramatic. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you called that out because... I was about to. <laughs> Dying <laughs> that's, how, that's how it feels. Okay. Streaming through like these tall golden grasses because we're really short, you know, we're just <laughs> two years old. And her, just beautiful and a feeling that everything good in the world was there inside of her. And if I could just reach her. So as a nine, it only made sense to me that I had a dominant sexual instinct because of how strong this desire lived in me pretty much every day from that moment forward. This longing to meet a girl, to be met by a girl, to be nourished just from her essence, her being. And I assumed this must be the sexual instinct and I was wrong it's the longing of a four straight up the aching feeling of of a hole in in me that I can never fill but she can if I just find the right woman the one who fits this hole in my chest and I'm I'm actually reminded of one of my favorite book titles ever, which is God-Shaped Hole. Like, that's exactly it. A hole that only God or my own real essence can fill. So, here's another example of how easy it is to take anecdotal accounts <clears throat> and use them to fuel a mistype situation. Back to Eli Jackson Bear. He spoke of how he would see nines all the time falling asleep in spiritual retreats and workshops and meditations, like literally fall asleep. And that was literally me. Since my late teens, any time that I slowed down and just rested, I would be overcome by a visceral physical heaviness and I could fall asleep just about anywhere. I was kind of proud of it actually. Even in a bustling foreign city with people all around me and get and get this like some years ago I followed through on a mission of meditating at least one hour every day for over a year and I succeeded but my sits were all really just a struggle in trying to stay awake every single sit it was a testament to my willpower like my self-pres for superpower of masochistic (laughs) enduring that i'd show up to my cushion every day knowing exactly how i was gonna get my butt served 
So I would discover decades later that all of this was not because I'm a nine. It's because I have sleep apnea (laughs) and I've been chronically total flat out sleep deprived through my entire adult life. Uh, That always gets me you poor thing. (laughs) I'm not looking for your sympathy though. (laughs) He's got his his machine now though. We call it his diving gear. Yeah. It's awesome. He puts it on every night. I do. I do. It's great. It's a game changer for both of us. Yeah. Lifesaver. Yeah, it's totally changed my life. Like I'm I'm alert every day. Like all through the day. Yeah. It's amazing. Okay. It's amazing. So did you tell everyone that you handed out a bag of tomatoes? No, I didn't. Just, just in case. No, everyone in the audience. Because I know. Stop. Okay, come no, on. Keep okay, going. Okay, okay. So um, another way that I twisted my understanding of the Enneagram circles around me as a professional artist, I would occasionally be approached by people who knew me as a painter and who would ask my Enneagram type, which is a totally common thing here in the Republic of Boulder. (laughs) And I'd say, yeah, I'm a nine. Some people would swallow that and believe me, but others would counter, what, are you sure you're not a four? And I'd say, yes. I'm sure. And I'd say it with a certain kind of authority because of getting this question, uh, I mean, occasionally. So it, it was because there's this idea that everyone who is an artist must be a four, which is just ridiculous. And also not all fours I know are artists. But going even deeper than that, I'd pull from Riso and Hudson's writings and say that a four knows that they are uniquely special, while a nine knows they are nobody special. And that's me, nobody special. Because, see, as a, as a self-pressed four, I was in denial about my envy which B and Oranio define as constant comparing and Riso and Hudson call chronic disappointment. So no, no, I am not comparing myself with others and I'm not pit stopping in oh bummer me land. I'm just, I'm just negating myself while also simultaneously striving to become someone someone with value but but (laughs) i'm not special enough to be someone who is uniquely flawed and that is how special i am so special that i'm not special at all but everybody else is and this whole thing i just i couldn't see it for what it was I was in such self-denial about my comparing mind. And if it's like, if this sounds like hard work to you, it is seriously hard work. 
B describes how the self-press four can work against themselves and hold so much in and how it can create a lot of tension in the body. So much so for me that I've really struggled with migraines since I was a kid. So, so this denial also showed up five or so years ago, almost six, when I introduced you, Victoria, to the Enneagram. I had the audiobook version of Riso and Hudson's personality types, which I highly, highly recommend for its detail in describing all nine types from like their greatest pinnacle of health step by step through like nine steps, nine levels, dropping down to the lowest of the lows. And man, for some of the types, including the four, the lows are pretty epic. <laughs> so I listened to the nines and even at the very highest level of health, I would, I would really take it all in and be like, okay, this is what I'm aspiring to, but I would just feel disappointed like their description just didn't light me up not to mention that they gave examples of people who kind of epitomized the nine and their list was including like Walt Disney and Mr. Rogers and even Marge Simpson that was the one that they always ended with I just it was like a stamp of boom, Marge Simpson, were all examples of the type nine. And Hudson actually adds now that Homer is also a nine. <laughs> <laughs> so the thing is, though, when I listen to the four, I just like, I love the description, which was something like profoundly creative and expressing the personal and the universal possibly in a work of art, inspired, self-renewing, and regenerating, able to transform all their experiences into something valuable, self-creative. And I mean, that just like sings through my soul. And then there's uh, examples from, you know, examples of the type four from Rumi to Tchaikovsky to Leonard Cohen. And these were mostly people that I personally looked up to or even idealized specifically for their capacity for deep feeling and self-expression. But my, my own low self-image wouldn't allow me to place myself in this camp of poets and musicians and artists and and that's even though I was an artist and I'd say I'd say a fairly prolific artist though often a financially struggling one envy comparing comparing myself and coming out less than or at least different just cemented my surety in me not being a four, but a nine. And here, I've got to say that all of this was filtering through my personality. 
like there is so this is my little disclaimer <laughs> or a side note or apology like there is a greatness in nines healthy nines that no other type can embody not quite like a nine and and of course this is true of all the types but what was happening was that I was relegating myself to a type that in my personality's understanding was missing something something that the f- the four had but I could never have I I could never have and yet as the counter type self press four I quickly like shift into gear and work to find a way to become a better more whole human more meditation more studying artists i admired and trying to learn from their paintings and more self-study to find that thing inside that i was missing that i needed to cultivate needed to work harder on so that i could ultimately step into my life with some sort of greater creative force or conviction or confidence beyond this really crushing sense of defeat that I experienced inside and which I really like loathe to share with others like it it feels kind of disgusting to share to share that Huh. How's it going over there? You're awfully quiet. <laughs> uh, it's it's going great, B. Okay. So that's another part of this wild little Enneagram journey of mine. Acting as if I'm okay, even when I'm suffering inside. And this is, again, where things get a little tricky. Because going w- way back, 20 plus years to reading wisdom of the Enneagram I did read through the four chapter and I'd feel a lot of resonance but when it came to their three descriptions of the self-pressed four the social four and the sexual four I just didn't fit in any of these I couldn't make it match up but I go back to the nine chapter read the sexual nine and it just did in a lot of ways my own guess on why this is is that they published their book in a time when the understanding of the subtypes was really still young and there was a theoretical understanding that the self-present instinct when dominant would show up in all types and I'm pulling from some of their writings here as a driving animal need and preoccupation for safety, comfort, health, energy, and well-being of the physical body. And then they go on to elaborate that the focus of attention naturally goes toward food, money, housing, medical matters, and physical comfort. And also areas such as clothes, temperature, shopping, and decorating. Hmm. How, how's that? That doesn't sound like you <laughs> okay. at all. I don't think so either. And then when it mixes with the four, 
we get the sensualist. And here they're deviating from what the early pioneers of the Enneagram, Ichazo and Naranjo, placed their focus on with the SP4, which is a certain recklessness, a dauntlessness, a tenacity of self. So instead, we have the sensualist who, and I'm reading again, who harbors a love for the finer things of life and wants to surround themselves with beautiful objects, might be moved by the presentation and symbolism of gifts and enjoy presenting gifts to others, and tends to be very particular, even obsessive about their physical surroundings, wanting soothing textures, mood lighting, and a comfortable temperature. Hmm. And I can tell you flat out that this is not me. I have always gone to extremes like living for two years, autumn through spring, on the open air front porch of a cabin. And instead of having a room of my own, I had a hard boot box as my bed. And I'd be breathing frigid air all through the winter night. And I wake up to shake the snow off my sleeping bag. And I loved it. I I loved that that was my <laughs> bed and my bedroom. Or always pushing the edges in the wilderness, like sometimes at risk to my own life. And it's a series of small miracles that I'm even still alive and I'm very grateful for this. Or skidding on the bottom of my bank account, like living on celery and peanut butter for a few years in my 20s, which I don't know if you know this, but that's why I don't eat peanut butter now. Mm. I ate so mm -hmm. much peanut butter back then that I, I created an allergy. Right, <laughs> to I do remember butter. you saying that, yeah. Yeah, okay. I still, to this day, have a very hard time spending money on myself for anything but the most basic survival stuff. So I say this with huge respect for Riso and Hudson. Like I said, their description of the healthy down to the unhealthy for is sheer brilliance and so much of their other work, in my opinion. But the self-pressed forward description seems to be based more on what I think is a hypothetical mixing of envy and the self preserving instinct than, than it does with how it's actually showing up in me. The same kind of description shows up in Sandra Maitri's self press 4, whose work I also love for its depth and soul. So side plug, if you haven't, I recommend checking out her spiritual dimensions of the Enneagram. So... <clears throat> This, this is where I'm so thankful for Beatrice Chestnut and her book, The Complete Enneagram. Her description of the Selpress 4 as the countertype of the four focuses on, and I'm going to read here, um, a moving against the passion of envy, a stoicism in the face of their inner pain, 
not sharing it with others as much as the social or sexual force, a tolerating of pain and doing without as a way of earning love, a working hard to get what others have and they lack, a demanding of a lot of themselves with a strong need to endure, and a passion for effort. B also describes how the social four is more of the stereotypical sad four. The sexual four is more of an angry four and the self-pressed four can be more sunny because, at least I think this is why, we hold or I hold so much of my pain inside and then I do this shape-shifting, which I'm super aware of, to present a, hey, I'm, I'm okay, I'm good, image to the world. And I've heard Hudson speak pretty recently that he believes there is no such thing as a sunny four, that it's a misunderstanding of what a four truly is. Meaning like people who aren't fours are kind of putting themselves, fitting themselves into the four via this kind of backdoor way that there's a sunny four. And fair enough, I mean, we're all certainly entitled to our own opinion, and I really say this with humility, as he is a master in the field, and I am absolutely not. But this one description, the Riso and Hudson take on the self-press four, is what had me confused for so long, and B's description clarified everything for me. So, this is all mixed in with the fact that my sister, hi, Marna, if you're listening. Hey, Marna. <laughs> she's, um, she's a couple years older than me, and she is identified as a four for a good long time now. I would guess she's a social four, and I'm pretty sure that that's how she sees herself. So, her being a four, it's one of the reasons I had a hard time imagining myself as a four, given the differences between us. So like going back to childhood, I remember her being way, way more comfortable showing her emotions to our parents, including like big, sweeping, intense emotions. And I was always pretty dang impressed by her capacity to engage in conflict with my dad, who is a self-affirmed self-preservation eight, who back in the day had plenty of, I guess we could say like anger issues, which would show up on the job, on the highway, at the dinner table. and. Actually, there was this one dinner, and I can't remember how old I was. I'd I'd like to think I was eight, but I may have actually been as old as 14 or 15. My sister and dad were going at each other, verbally loud, intense emotion. And I was just sitting quietly, just trying to manage being alive. all the intensity of it when I realized with like this 
just terrible force of self-consciousness that I was crying. So I quietly wiped my tears away and said inwardly to myself something like, I will never let them see me cry again. Hmm. I don't even think I had words for it, but it was just the the feeling, the knowing. Hmm. And then a moment later, I realized that while I had stopped the crying, my chin was shaking with the force of my emotions that I couldn't hide. So I doubled down and I choked them down. I steadied my chin and committed myself to locking my feelings inside where they at least couldn't be obvious to others or or at least most most others I'm sure some people could see and so to this day I still get this like pain in my throat when an emotion rises in me and I'm in a context where I don't want it to be seen I'm working on relaxing that. <laughs> work, <laughs> work, work, work. One of the self-pressed four credos. So I ultimately had a meeting with Beatrice and she helped me really untangle all this. And she came to the conclusion after me giving her my most raw, genuine, real self, because I really just wanted to know the truth and get her reflection of what I'm really doing. And she came to the conclusion that it's so unlikely that I would be a nine based on all this and way more because I was with her for an hour and a half and so very likely that I am self-pres four based on her decades of working with fours inside of a therapeutic setting. I think we could maybe call her a four whisperer mm-hmm. <laughs> or at least at least a champion of the often unseen self-pres four. So in case you can't feel it, I've got some energy around all this because there is this little slice of a subtype in the larger Enneagram pie that is often not understood for what I believe it to really be and which aligns really so dead on with B and Arania's accounting of the subtype. And if we if we don't get our type right and we don't know what type we truly are, then we'll never get to the core of our personality where we can then begin the work of liberating ourselves from it and living more from essence. And in the time since landing on the self press for, I have come to see that envy is everywhere in me. And this is true for all types. Our passion is everywhere until we begin to see it and feel it. And then we begin to have a choice to not follow it. 
and I have a huge thanks to you, Victoria, for not falling for me being a sexual nine, Mm -hmm. for helping me see that, yes, I am running Envy like a madman or, well, just like a four. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then seeing how, for me, as a self-preservation for denying my envy is actually a part of my subtype package. And since seeing all all of this like through real eyes, true eyes, what's really happening, the good work has really begun for me. Hmm. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, thank you for this, Bryce. It really clear, really thorough. Uh, yeah, uh, de- detailed, um, honest. Um, mm. I'm the picture that I'm I'm getting of the self-preservation for is um, probably the the clearest that I've ever gotten from listening to you right now hmm. so thank you I I I, th- I think this is gonna be really helpful for hmm. for people out there uh, those that are unsure they you know are just could I be a self-pressed mm-hmm. for? I think I think this will help clarify mm-hmm. things. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. I think I'm just backing up just far enough that I'm about to slip over the cliff. <laughs> Boy, that was close. Oh my gosh! Look at that clearing <laughs> off in the distance. Wow! Oh. The storm has passed. <laughs> the sun is coming out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's good. It's really good stuff to see what I'm really up to mm. and not be caught in in a story of, you know, that's not addressing what is actually happening, mm-hmm. which is what it is to be believing that I'm one type when I'm actually another. So mm-hmm. seeing that seeing the truth has been just a real, yeah, a real liberation for yeah. me. Yeah. And my the work, the it has just been accelerating because I'm working with what's really going on. Yeah. 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 Very cool. Very cool. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. Thanks for tuning in, everyone, and joining us on the seaside cliff. <laughs> you can go home and cook some tomatoes into a stew now since I don't, I don't think anyone threw any at me. <laughs> no, uh, they didn't. No. Okay. All right, everyone. All right. Thanks for joining us, and we'll... See you next time. Over and out. Bye.